0: Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Rapincheck, your host at National Parks
1: Traveler. With the end of November in sight, more and more national parks in the northern half of the country are moving to winter operations, which means scaled back access in some cases, and reduced visitor hours. Among those parks are Acadia, Grand Canyon, Lassen Volcanic, Yellowstone, and Bryce Canyon. Southern-tier parks, such as Big Bend and Everglades, however, are seeing growing crowds taking advantage of milder winter temperatures. Also in the news this past week, we told you about the Trump administration's decision to essentially block the proposed pebble mine, a gold, copper, and molybdenum project that would go in close to Lake Clark National Park and Preserve in Alaska. The Army Corps of Engineers decided against issuing a much-needed clean water permit for the operation, saying it was not in the best interests of the public. We also passed on news of a right whale calf, possibly stillborn, that washed ashore at Cape Lookout National Seashore on North Carolina's Outer Banks, explored El Morro and El Malpais National Monuments in New Mexico, and explained a concerning situation at Gulf Islands National Seashore in Florida, involving a submerged sandbar, key for Gulf of Mexico fisheries, that has turned into a party place for thousands of people. The National Park Service has to figure out a way to scale back the festivities, which have turned deadly at times and which also lead to serious environmental damage. You can find those and other stories about national parks and protected areas at nationalparkstraveler.org. Utah harbors an amazing collection of National Park System units, from five national parks including Arches, Bryce Canyon, and Zion to such national monuments as Natural Bridges, Rainbow Bridge, and Cedar Breaks. More recently, the state became home to Grand Staircase-Escalante National Monument, which the Bureau of Land Management oversees, and Bears Ears National Monument, which is shared by the BLM and the U.S. Forest Service. How did these places come to be? What challenges did they face along the way to inclusion in the national park system or the overall public lands network, and what challenges continue to confront them? Frederick Swanson is a Salt Lake City writer who long has studied public lands issues in Utah, and his latest book delves into the history of these parks and monuments. After a short break, he joins me to discuss that book, Wonders of Sand and Stone, A History of Utah's National Parks and Monuments. It's a worthy title to include in your own National Park
0: Library. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come, to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, and that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute. Apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org.
1: Utah is a state blessed with incredible scenery. It's scenery that is rich with history as well. As spectacular as the landscape appears to us today as tourists, it could be equally demanding, destitute, and crippling to past cultures, homesteaders, and prospectors who sought to tame the canyon-riddled Colorado Plateau landscape in the southern half of the state. Even now, in the 21st century, after just about 125 years of statehood, the southern swath of Utah largely refuses to be tamed. So what makes it so appealing? Why did so many explorers sift through the canyon country? How did the national parks, Arches, Bryce Canyon, Capitol Reef, Canyonlands in Zion, materialize out of this landscape that constantly tests human visitors? Frederick Swanson is a Salt Lake City writer who took a deep dive into trying to answer those questions. He put his answers in a new book, Wonders of Sand and Stone, a history of Utah's National Parks and Monuments. Welcome to The Traveler, Fred.
2: Good morning, Kurt. It's nice to be with you.
1: Now, I'll admit it, I love National Parks and History. In college, I had a history minor. But what prompted you to take up this challenging project? It really had its gestation
2: way back with Ken Burns' wonderful series on our national parks, And uh, that was back in 2009, I believe. And I noticed that he was taking the approach along with his writer, uh, Dayton Duncan, of telling individual stories of people who were involved either with creating the national parks or publicizing them, or perhaps they were artists or writers. And I thought that was a, a very useful way to look at our national park lands, our national monuments, from the standpoint of the people who helped to bring them about. And I simply wanted to transpose that approach to Utah, where we actually haven't had an overall comprehensive sort of history of our national park lands uh, for many
1: years in, in a book form. Early on, you mentioned something that I had never heard. You wrote that Zion Canyon was said to surpass Yosemite in sheer scenic magnificence, and it was easy to see why. One wanted to linger in this sheltering desert Eden, a place that seems set apart from the outside world. Isn't that almost blasphemous in the national park world, Fred?
2: (laughs) Well, I think a lot of us would like to linger in a place like Zion. There's just something about the those soaring sandstone walls and the cottonwood groves that uh, impress us. It's not just spectacular, it has a sense of enclosure. And one of the first pioneers who built a little homestead up in there, a fellow named Isaac Behunin he was part of the Latter-day Saint settlers in that Virgin River Valley. He really keyed into this and he started calling that valley there, Little Zion. Uh, and that was a reference to Salt Lake City, which was known as Zion or a place of refuge for the Mormon settlers. And so for many years, the, the uh, what we call Zion Canyon was known locally as uh, Little Zion. And Behunan was even thought to have considered it to be a, a place where folks might have to hole up in case the uh, federal government came out there looking for polygamists or whatever.
1: Interesting part of uh, Utah history, for sure. Now, you also touched on something from more than a century ago, indeed going back to the 19th century, that might explain some of the backdrop to the fight put up over the establishment of both Grand Staircase-Escalante National Monument back in 1996 and then Bears Ears National Monument in 2016. You cite another historian, Jedediah Rogers, who called primitive wagon tracks, The physical evidence of the Mormon's unquestioning faith in divinely inspired human ingenuity to subdue the land and make it useful to human beings. This led them, you write, to give much different meanings to the landscape of southern Utah than the picturesque or sublime interpretations of travelers. The difference would persist throughout the 20th century and would lead to a great deal of conflict over how the land should be treated. Now, do you think that the, the faith the Mormons had in their ability to, in essence, conquer or tame the landscape for a reasonable livelihood played a key role in the battle over Grand Staircase and Bears Ears? Well, it certainly
2: did and still does, Kurt. There's a, a divergence of approaches that you can trace back, as as you noted, clear to the early days of Mormon settlement in places like southern Utah, where those pioneers went down there with an explicit mission from their church to find places to settle, to build new towns, communities, a new civilization. And they did so with with remarkable success in places like uh, the Virgin River Valley, uh, even these outlying towns such as Canab, Escalante. But that's really as far as they got. And beyond that, frontier, when you get into the the heart of what we call canyon country, the land was simply too rugged, too rocky, too arid to permit much settlement. Uh, The cattlemen, of course, ranged flocks of sheep and horses and cows all through there. So they were making use of it in that way. And quite a few of the uh, Mormon settlers took part in the big gold rush in Glen Canyon. But there was always this feeling that The land needed to be made to blossom or if not blossom, at least to produce some kind of a living. And that I do feel set the stage for the eventual conflicts that we see today over public lands. However, I I would want to note, and I try to bring this out in my book, that there is also a remarkable spirit of cooperation, I feel, between many of the civic leaders in Southern Utah, places like the uh, Virgin River Valley, over the creation of our first national parks, Zion and Bryce Canyon. They saw national parks as a way to perhaps bring in a little extra income through the tourist business, but also, and this was very important, uh, again, as uh, Jedediah Rogers pointed out in his book, New parks meant roads, and roads were an incredibly important part of the uh, pattern of settlement and the the desire to improve their connections with the rest of the outside world. That was a very remote area down there in the early 1900s. So national parks were kind of a way in which some of these um, civic leaders sought to kind of integrate into the rest of the country almost.
1: Interesting, interesting. You know, um, and, and going back to this um, battle of whether to preserve or, or to protect or to develop these lands, Utah Long has embraced national parks and monuments, as, as you noted, um, going back to natural bridges as a national monument designated in 1908 and the establishment of uh, Macunktaweep National Monument um, the next year and, of course, uh, the effort in the 1930s to create uh, Wayne Wonderland. National Park, a sprawling proposal that ended up with the creation of Capitol Reef National Monument, which evolved, of course, into a national park. Is there a love-hate relationship in Utah with preserving these landscapes more so than than in other states?
2: I don't know if I'd venture that it's that much different than other states, but you do have this, this um, unusual set of circumstances with a group of people in the early days, the early 1900s, who had a a charge from their own church to go out and make something out of these lands to establish new communities. So that, I suppose, gave it an additional, uh, there's a potential for conflict there. But that's really part of the overall history of Utah, the attempts of people living here to try to integrate with the rest of the country, yet maintain that that distinctiveness that's always characterized um, Mormon culture here. So when you consider that in the context of national parks, I I found it pretty remarkable that so many civic leaders, as you alluded to in in the Wayne Wonderland, uh, you had Ephraim Pechtol and Joseph Hickman, who were both active in the LDS church there in Torrey, in the little town of Torrey and Bicknell. In promoting this so-called Wayne Wonderland. They were working with the National Park Service leaders of, of their time to promote a new monument or park. And it really seems like, in terms of the national park system, the, the local leaders and the park service were singing from the same page. And that persisted up until, actually you can pinpoint the date, 1936. And that's when the National Park Service unveiled this spectacular, incredible proposal for a new national monument in Southeastern Utah that would have taken in nearly 7 million square miles of the canyon country. And this was the the Escalante monument proposal that many of, of your readers have heard of. And when that proposal surfaced, it came out of the blue, and it absolutely vaporized this consensus that that both the Park Service and local people have been working to build.
1: Just, just amazing. Um, you know, and you can look across the national park system, I guess, where you've got uh, similar situations, certainly at Shenandoah and, and Great Smoky Mountains, where the locals were basically told to move out because we're going to create this national park, although in those instances, um, the states of Virginia and North Carolina and Tennessee were behind those those efforts.
2: In, in Utah, you had less uh, less of that in terms of actually having to move out people living on the land. In Zion, when the park was established in 1919, there was only one active settlement or homestead there. That was the Crawford place down near the bottom of the canyon, and it took a number of years the Park Service to come up with the funds and persuade the, the Crawford family to move out. But elsewhere across the canyon country, it was simply so um, desolate or arid that uh, you didn't have much in the way of settlement. And that made it easier to set aside some of these areas that we have today.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Now, myself being something of a throwback, I like to think at times one who perhaps wished he was born in the 1800s rather than the 1900s. I I found it interesting that you cite the author James Fenimore Cooper, the landscape painter Albert Bierstadt, and the author Zane Gray, among those who tried to fix the landscape in a moment of pre-industrial time to preserve the primitive before it disappeared, to build on that effort, you noted that during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it was, quote, possible to find places where modernity had scarcely touched the land and its inhabitants. Even today, a century later, you could still make that claim, right? I think you can. And and this is one of the, the tremendous attractions of
2: the Colorado Plateau and the canyon country that we have in, in Utah. I think many of us... Uh, uh, who have been visiting these places for a number of years have felt that sense of attraction when just say last, last uh, winter in, in February, my wife and I went down to Bryce Canyon National Park. And of course, in the summertime, Bryce is a very busy place, but there were relatively few people there in uh, that time of year. It's a beautiful time to visit Bryce, of course, with the snow on the pinnacles and everything, but we, lingered one evening right at the overlook, uh, I don't know if it was sunset point or inspiration point, and we could look out to the east toward the Table Cliff Plateau and off toward the Kaiparowitz. and we only saw two electric lights in all of that expanse. And that's just a a tremendous feeling of, of believing that this is maybe what the earth looked like a long time ago, or even what some of the pioneers experienced in the late 1800s, as you say. And is that experience worth something or is it just nostalgia? Well, I happen to think that our national park system has something to contribute in the way of reminding us of where we've come from in both a, a physical and cultural sense, if that makes sense. Uh, those vistas are just, you know, they stir something in the soul, really
1: no they really do and and um i think a great part of the country unfortunately hasn't had the chance to experience them i know um i grew up in new jersey and unfortunately uh, fled west as soon as i could but i had some some friends who who later in life um i was in contact with and they didn't know what the blm was they didn't know how much public lands um the federal government owned in the west and and in turn the taxpayers what they owned. And so I think there's a, unfortunately, maybe a disconnect in some parts of the country about what it really looks like anymore. I mean, being able to to go outside at night and look up at the universe, as opposed to being blinded by by city lights or whatnot. So I think uh, we really are spoiled uh, here in the West with some of these vistas. Exactly. And I think that's where the National Park
2: Service has such a tremendous contribution that it can make and has made in terms of interpreting these scenic features and drawing visitors out of their cars and back into the trails and seeing some of this landscape, explaining the the ecology and the botany and the cultural background of it. There are so many people that come to these places from all over the country, the East Coast, as you say, uh, every country in the world visits our parks. Utah has really become a magnet. And that represents an opportunity for education, which I feel is one of the central purposes of the whole national park system.
1: We're talking today with Frederick Swanson, a Salt Lake City writer whose new book, Wonders of Sand and Stone, a history of Utah's national parks and monuments, really explores how these wondrous places like Zion and Arches and Canyonlands, and even Rainbow Bridge and Natural Bridge National Monument came to be. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back.
0: Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Acadia National Park is one of the ten most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at Friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at BRPFoundation.org.
1: We're back with Frederick Swanson, a Salt Lake City writer, um, discussing his new book, Wonders of Sand and Stone, A History of Utah's National Parks and Monuments. Fred, you must have felt constrained in pulling this project together. I mean, there there was a battle over Echo Canyon in Dinosaur National Monument and how that led to the Glen Canyon Dam. That alone could have justified a book. And then all the personalities that are salted through the history – Major John Wesley Powell, Ed Abbey, David Brower, Bernard DeVoto, Stuart Udall, Wallace Stegner, and more. Was it tough to to rein in the material you had? I mean, I, I think the 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 narrative goes to 300 pages, but I'm sure you could have written more.
2: That's really true, Kurt. Uh, my outtakes file is probably the basis for another book here. And there have been a a, a large number of really excellent books about all of those places and, and conservation battles. Echo Park, for example, uh, wonderful books by Mark Harvey and John Costco. But what I was trying to do was somehow, and maybe this was an impossible task, draw it all together. It really surprised me when I started thinking about this uh, project that no one had written an overall comprehensive history of Utah's national parkland since 1950. And of course, our park system has expanded a great deal since then. So sure, you have to pick and choose, you hit the highlights. I tried to draw in not only the well-known figures like Major Powell or Edward Abbey, although they do make appearances here, but also some of the lesser known figures uh, who I feel have fascinating stories. Like uh, I didn't realize that Arches National Park got its start when a prospector from Hungary named Alexander Ringhofer, was wandering around some of the cliffs around uh, what we now call Klondike Bluffs uh, in the north section of the park. And he thought this was so wonderful that he called up a railroad agent to come out and have a look. And the railroad guy got in touch with Stephen Mather of the Park Service and the whole process was set in motion for Arches becoming a national monument in 1929. And the history of these parks is just dotted with these little vignettes, these fascinating little stories of someone who who wandered off into this amazing landscape and thought, wow, this is really something that ought to be brought to the attention of the outside world and, and led ultimately to these parks and monuments we have today.
1: Yeah, and then there's the whole the whole chapter of the railroads and and the role they played in in building some of these uh, park lodges and and certainly in in bringing tourists to the national parks. I mean, it was it was an incredible draw, not just here in Utah, but but across the country. You know, a number of railroads really um, banked a lot of their business on on the national parks.
2: That's certainly true, and and as we were discussing earlier, uh, Alfred Runty is is. Written some excellent books on that subject of how closely the railroads were involved in the creation of our national parks as well as their popularization. And that happened to a degree in Utah. However, none of our parks had a railway right to their doorstep, as Grand Canyon had at the South Rim and Yellowstone had at the North Entrance. So, what the railroads did here, on the Union Pacific in particular, was develop auto-touring services that would provide, oh, like a five-day tour of various national parks that would base out of their railhead. And they promoted this as a package tour. You could take the uh, Union Pacific down to Cedar City, and this is the 1920s and 30s, and get on a comfortable touring coach and go for a tour of the North Rim of the Grand Canyon, Bryce Canyon, Zion, Cedar Breaks, you had a comfortable lodge to stay in, meals. And then one of the, the really neat little features of this is that in the morning when you gathered on the steps of the lodge to board your car for the next uh, the next place, the staff would come out in their uniforms and sing songs for you. And this is the so-called sing-away. And what a wonderful experience. I, I kind of wish we could go back to that today.
1: Yeah, that would be nice. That would be nice. Now, as you mentioned, you you really dug um, pretty deep um, to to find some, perhaps we'll call them unknowns, until your book came out. Um, individuals who played such a role in in these places, and frankly, I was I was astonished at the rich material you mined for this book. H- how long did you research it, and how many rabbit holes did that work take you down? <laughs> Well, the, there were some very pleasant rabbit holes. Uh, doing this research was
2: was a lot of fun, but I have been working on it f- uh, for close to 10 years. And one of the things I did after that Ken Burns series came out is I thought, hey, I ought to teach uh, an adult education class on this. So I signed up with the uh, program at the University of Utah here, the Osher Institute, and for several sessions offered a uh, course in the history of our national parks. And I found at the end of that, that uh, my notes were really the beginnings of a book. And of course, anyone who's done historical research, you know, you can just go on and on and on. And there comes a point where you've got to get this thing done and get it in print if anyone's ever gonna read it. And so that's uh, you know, thanks to the University of Utah Press and some very wonderful staff there. That's where we are today.
1: Nice, nice. Was there any specific takeaway, any central theme to the establishment of these parks and monuments that your work boiled up to the surface that you weren't aware of previously?
2: I think the, the aspect of this that most struck me was how important it is to consider our individual national parks and monuments here in Utah as part of a larger region this whole encompassing landscape of the Colorado Plateau, or in in Utah, what we often call Canyon Country. And over and over again, in the latter part of my book, I discuss many of the resource development conflicts that reared their heads, that would have impinged on the parks, a dam on the Green River in Dinosaur, a huge coal-fired power generating station on the Kaparowicz Plateau that would have spread smoke into our national parks, Uh, proposed nuclear waste dump right outside of Canyonlands National Park in the 1980s. And that was a very viable proposal for a while. So it struck me that you can't consider or look at our national park units as isolated little enclaves. They exist within this matrix of public lands. And what happens on those lands outside of the park borders is critical for the experience and the ecological value of these parks. This is something that our park administrators, the managers, the superintendents, the rangers are keenly aware of, and they keep trying to bring this to the attention of of, uh, we, the public
1: that use these places. Any any surprises that materialized in your research?
2: One of the things that struck me was, uh, this is kind of two sides of the same coin, was how few women were involved within the National Park Service itself in its early days, and yet how many women actually were out there cruising around the canyon country, doing things like studying its botany in particular. There were some notable botanists in the early days. Even even John Wesley Powell's sister was busily collecting plant specimens while
1: the rest of the crew was off mapping faults and anticlines. That, that was the first reference I ever heard to him bringing his sister along. That was an interesting aspect of your research.
2: Yeah. Um, there were just a lot of people who
1: were struck
2: by this country long before Edward Abbey came along and kind of made it famous. Clyde Cluckhorn, for example, a, a young student from Princeton who spent four summers out in uh, the southwest exploring the Indian pueblos, But he and a bunch of friends climbed up onto the Kaiparowitz Plateau in 1928, I believe it was, and were so entranced by that whole area that they thought it ought to become a national park. Stories like that I I found just really fascinating. And it gave me the sense that the, the sense of wonder that you and I and so many others experience today is really something that goes way back. Uh, it struck almost everybody that's that's encountered that landscape.
1: yeah, yeah Now, having deeply researched this history, as you said, you you spent uh, probably a decade you know on this particular topic for a title. Um, and it's been central to your research and writings for a longer time, i'm I'm guessing. Any predictions of how Utah's battle over natural resources will evolve? I mean, um, the the presidential election, um, we're hearing talk that uh, President-elect Biden not only will restore the original um, boundaries of uh, Bears Ears and Grand staircase, but he might go bigger. And that, of course, um, likely will lead to some pushback from the state. Is Utah done with uh, national park units, monuments, um, or do you see more in its future, or What do you see? I really don't have a crystal ball on that, Kurt. Um, Grand
2: Staircase Escalante, I remember when that came out, that was a surprise to many of us. Bears Ears really wasn't on the radar except for a proposal that conservation and wilderness groups had here for a long time for expanding canyon lands. And that kind of got merged in with the very innovative effort brought forth by these five Native American tribes to create the Bears Ears. Where it's going to head from here, it's a little like Mark Twain said about the weather. Uh, We know there's gonna be a lot of it. Um, We're going to see, I think, unrelenting conflict over the disposition of these public lands. That's unfortunate. Uh, I consider myself a peaceable person. I wish we could just all get along. The one contribution I hope I make in this book is to suggest that if we can somehow stand back a little bit and look at the overall region that we call Canyon Country in the Colorado Plateau, perhaps there'll be a way to work out some solutions that benefit all of the players in this. And I cite one example, and that is the effort under the Obama administration to develop what were known as master leasing plans for oil and gas development as an effort to guide where, when, and how oil and gas development could occur in the proximity of so many national parks and protected lands. And this was, I think, a a very worthwhile effort that was unfortunately scuttled by the administration that followed. And I would like to see that kind of approach reinstituted. There won't be any easy solutions, we know that. But I think that uh, people of good conscience working together can perhaps find some workable solutions. And I, I think the efforts again, by the, uh, the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition is a, a remarkable contribution to this. And I,
1: I look forward to seeing more of their uh, their input. Certainly the more voices we can get involved, um, the better we'll all be at the end and uh, hopefully end the, um, the locked in positions that we held and maybe compromise a little bit. Well, Fred, thanks so much for joining us today. Your book is uh, a great resource um, for, for history lovers and, and for national park goers in general, I think, because it really does, um, as the saying goes, explain the story behind the scenery. Thank you for your time today. You're welcome, Kurt, and happy travels. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. This coming Tuesday, December 1st, marks the annual Giving Tuesday campaign for supporting nonprofit organizations. Along with considering the many great nonprofits that support national parks, we hope you'll consider a donation to National Parks Traveler, a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that is the only news outlet we know of focused on news from the national park system. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rapinchek.